Hello and welcome to episode three of the Data Protection Tea Break with me, Tim Loveridge, and our Deputy Commissioner, Rachel Masterton. And today we're going to be talking about the end of transition. In this episode, we're planning to cover what the end of transitional relief actually looks like, why it's happening, when it's happening, and the key areas we're going to be talking about is uh, the contracts between organisations, the information that we're providing, the role of things like DPIAs, data portability, consent, and what we're going to do is wrap that up at the end with a quick overview. So, So welcome to this edition. So, Rachel... What is the end of transition? What does that mean? Okay, when the new law came in back on 25th of May last year, it was recognised that there were several aspects of the new law that were going to be complicated for organisations to put into place. It was going to take a fair amount of time for organisations to go through their existing processes and to update them to meet the requirements of the new law. Therefore, various aspects of the new law were subject to transitional relief, giving organisations an extra year in which to get various processes up to speed. So so the assumption was that not everybody was ready for it? Is that what we're talking about? Um, It was to assist organisations that may not have been ready. The new law was approved by the States of Guernsey on the 29th of November uh, 2017, and so there was around six months once um, everything was firmed up and agreed uh, to put things into place to be ready for the new law and because it was going to cover um, new processing that was occurring from 25th of May onwards and um, processing that had been carrying on for years previously uh, the transitional relief was put in place to mean that um, organisations were given this extra year to get um, in various areas of the law their previous processes up to speed so where they okay. were doing things before they've now had had an extra year to get them because I tend to think mind. of transition and please correct me if I'm miles out but um, you, you've got organisations starting to do something new and they have to adhere to the new law when they start to do something new but you've also got organisations that have been doing things for years but they have to kind of sort themselves out is that an explanation of what's been going on with that? Yes essentially that is it that for various aspects of the law and we'll go into those in a bit more detail um, where they were processing previously they've been given some extra time to get up to speed but anything new that's happened that's been um, commenced since 25th of May should have been being done in compliance with the law. Cool, okay. And so May 25th, 2019, one year on from the introduction Indeed. of our new law. Um, so what happens from that date forward? You know, why do people have to you know, really think about what, um, getting ready for that, for that date? Um, because on the 25th of May 2019, the transitional year that was given um, ceases. Um, and so for um, processing that was occurring prior to the, that date last year... Um, the um, it now needs to be done compliant with the legislation. So everything that needs to have been gotten up to speed in the last year should be in place by 25th of May. Okay. So um, privacy notices then. Let's, let's yes. talk about privacy notices. What, what do you need to do? What, what, what is a privacy notice and how does that work? Okay, a privacy notice um, is the vehicle that um, organisations use to comply with sections 12 and 13 of the law. It is providing um, individuals uh, that they have contact with, whether that be staff or clients, with information about how their personal data is going to be used by that organisation. With regards to transition, because organisations would have had pre-existing relationships with a number of clients, a number of staff, um, the extra year was given to provide them with time to update 
um, information that had been provided under the previous law. And so by the 25th of May this year, everybody that has contact with an organisation should be able to access up-to-date, accurate privacy notices explaining how data is used, for what purpose, which lawful processing conditions apply and providing information about contacts with the organisation, the rights individuals have and how they can get to us as the regulator if they wish to raise a concern. And how does a business and organisation actually... How do we? What would we like to see as far as publishing that privacy notice? Where does that need to be? How 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 do they need to make it accessible to their customer base? We can do it in various different ways, and a layered approach is often a useful way to approach it. But um, having a privacy notice on a website that people can go to because people know that, that they deal with an organisation is a very good way of getting the comprehensive information out there. But at points of sale, um, if you're collecting personal data, it could be a, a brief notice explaining a little bit about what's happening and pointing them to um, the more comprehensive information on a website. Perhaps when you're signing up somebody for a new service, um, giving them that information with the sign-up documents, um, and certainly in order to meet the requirements of them at the end of transition, having that that people can get hold of is something that we that organisations need to look at. So again, websites. Some people may remember an influx of privacy notices to um, their email addresses in the run-up to the 25th of May last year, where organisations were doing that. So perhaps something similar again in some circumstances. And for those organisations, I guess it's difficult to conceive, but it certainly happens, is those organisations that don't have a website, how do they make their privacy notice available and what's their obligation under our laws? Um, It needs to be something that individuals can have access to, so they would need to build that into some other format, um, perhaps um, supplying it with other information when you sign up. Um, maybe including it um, with an invoice run, perhaps, um, so that you get that information out. Brilliant, thank you. So moving on then, um, I wanted to talk about the relationships between controls and processes um, and the contracts that, are, that need to be in place between those for the, for the sake of data and data privacy and data processing. So uh, explain a bit more to me about that. How's that all going to work? Okay, well... Organisations can perform different roles when it comes to dealing with personal data and for some um, personal data they will be the controller, they will be the organisation that's determining what happens with that data and why that's happening and for some um, processing they do, they may be the processor so they're performing a task on behalf of another organisation. So can you give me an example of a controller and a processor? Um, A controller and a processor may be an outsourced payroll arrangement for example so the controller would be the organisation that is um, employing the staff um, but a processor would be performing the payroll function. Um, for that organisation if they didn't do payroll themselves. Similarly, an advertising um, marketing campaign uh, may be being conducted by a third-party organisation. So the controller would be the organisation whose products are being advertised and the processor would be the organisation that is um, facilitating that, so running the campaign, sending out the emails, um, whatever that may be. And and we talked about contracts. So how how does the contract look in that that arrangement? Um, Under the old law, there always should have been a contract between controllers and processors explaining that um, processors should only act where they've been um, instructed by the controller and providing some requirements around security. Those need to be enhanced. And so from um, 25th of May last year, any new controller-processor agreements being put into place need to have covered um, the subject matter of the processing, how long the processing is going to continue for, how long the information is going to be held by the other party potentially, um, 
the type of processing, the scope and the context and the purpose and explaining um, the types of information that's being processed and the categories of the data subjects and outlining rights and duties. So um, organisations, controllers have to comply with a number of data subject rights um, and where there is a processor involved, the processor needs to be able to assist the controller in facilitating those. So if a um, subject access request comes in from an individual to the controller, it might actually be the company that is performing the role of processor that holds the information that the, the organisation needs to respond with. And so the um, contract will outline what that um, extraction and process will look like. So how does the um, okay. processor provide that information back to the controller so the controller can meet their obligations? Because the, the, the dynamic, I think, between those two functions is quite interesting. The, you know, the controller can outsource the process, if you like, but has to retain responsibility for yes. it. I mean, is, is that a fair um, you know, assessment of, the, of how that works? It is, yes. Um, you, can't, you, you can outsource the processing, but you can't outsource the compliance. You can't make it somebody else's problem and, and wash your hands entirely of it just by getting another organisation involved. Um, so the contract will cover off what that looks like, security that's expected, assistance that's expected. But in critically, compared with the previous law, processes now have some liability um, under the law. Uh, we as the regulator can take action against processes if they um, do not comply with their requirements in a way that we couldn't before. And so the transition around this was that where there were already those um, relationships in place... Uh, organisations were given an additional year to get those contracts into into place, to get them up to speed and covering what needed to be done. And as a regulator, are you seeing those contracts now being put in place? Are you seeing people advancing uh, in, in, into a state of readiness, I suppose, for the 25th of May this year? Yes, and so we, we've seen ourselves, because we are a controller, we um, have relationships with processors, we've seen those contracts being amended, being updated, um, to cover off areas that are, are needing to be covered in a way they weren't before. And so that process is ongoing. But this serves as a timely reminder to organisations that if they haven't updated those contracts, then they need to. Because certainly from 25th of May onwards, if um, a complaint comes in around processing um, between a controller and a processor, we will be looking to see what the, pro- the contracts look like and whether they meet the requirements of the law. Brilliant, thank you. Moving on then, let's talk about DPIAs. What does DPIA stand for? DPIA is a Data Protection Impact Assessment. Um, One of those lovely acronyms we like throwing in there just to uh, keep people on their toes. Essentially, it's an assessment of the risk that there may be around the processing that is occurring. So what are the risks to the individual's rights, their freedoms, their significant interests by the processing that is going on? And what are the organisation going to do about mitigating those risks? And how do you find out? So who does the DPIA? The DPIA will be done by the controller, by somebody within the organisation. A data protection officer, if there is one within the organisation, should be involved in that process. But it may actually be better to be led by the people in the business that know in depth the processing that is going on because they understand the relationships data flows the data protection officer can assist and advise and can um, be a critical friend in that process Um, dpias are required by law where there is a high risk um, to um, an individual's data um, and and their processing or their significant interests so in circumstances where there's large-scale processing of special category data what used to be sensitive personal data 
um, organisations should be doing data protection impact assessments. Likewise, if there is um, systematic and extensive automated processing and decision making, there should be a DPIA done. So when a, a new business process is suggested or a new system is going to be put in place, a DPIA should be done in advance of that and should be monitored throughout towards um, completion of the project and the processing starting to check that the risks are being mitigated. And for those who've never done a risk assessment of of this type before, how, how do they find out about how to do that? How, how do they, you know, is there a template? Is there some kind of guidance that that they they can use to actually start this process for themselves? Yes, we have provided guidance on our website um, about DPIAs and what they look like. They can very much be structured to meet an organisation's requirements. So if it's a small organisation doing. Uh, making a change. The DPIA may not be as extensive as if it's a large multinational organisation that is doing this process. But on our website, on our resources, um, the resources section of um, our new law page, there is some guidance there and and templates that can assist in starting that process. If they do a DPIA, they do a risk assessment of the things that they're they're working on, the Mm -hmm. things they're processing, and they do find that they have a high risk uh, element to what they're doing. What, what should they do? What, what if, if they, you know, something's sort of bubbled to the top of that, and, and they've identified, oh, this is quite risky. What should we do about it? How does it, how do they go about mitigating that risk? What is their next course of action? They need to um, consider that risk. Often, it's useful to do it from "if it was my data, what would I think?" type approach, and see how they may be able to mitigate that risk down. So, is it putting additional security in place? So, maybe it's not giving the entire organisation access to the data. Maybe you you um, offer a more granular approach to security. Maybe it's questioning whether you actually need as much data as you are suggesting collecting, perhaps, and pulling back um, volume-wise from that. Um, if you get to the end of that process an organisation has attempted to mitigate the risk down but the risk remains high there is a requirement within the law to refer that to this office and we will then take a look and provide some um, guidance around how we believe they could look to mitigate the risk Um, but there is also the potential that we would say in that circumstance we don't think you should do this anymore and and put a stop on, on the processing And that certainly happened with the Irish Commissioner. Uh, There was a suggestion uh, with Facebook um, in the last couple of months that they streamlined some of the way they process and some of the data in their Facebook product gets shared with their WhatsApp product and with their Instagram product. And the Irish Commissioner has said, um, in advance of them doing any DPIA, we don't want you to do that if the risk because we believe the risk is high. We want you to address those risks first. So they've okay. pre- taken a preemptive approach to that. But we could end up in a similar position if we're approached by an organisation. So, so when I think of uh, when, when you talk about the when part of this, mm-hmm. I guess I'm hearing two parts to that. The first one is we really need to have been doing this by the time this transitional relief comes to an end. But also, you know, DPIAs are necessary every time you re-engage with a new processor or look to change processing of any description. Is that fair? Yes, it is. When, whenever you're making a change, instigating a new system, um, a new business line, uh, you need to be looking at doing a DPIA if it falls into those mandatory categories. But a DPIA at any time is good practice. Uh, best practice way of dealing with the the processing that's occurring. 
And on the, on the subject of change, doing something differently, let's talk about data portability. So, so what does data portability mean and, uh, and why do we need to be aware of that? Okay, data portability is a new right that came um, in, into play in our, in our law um, and um, has its roots in GDPR. Um, data portability means that an individual can ask an organisation, a controller, to provide them with the data that they've given the organisation in an um, electronic format, a machine-readable format, that they can then take to another controller. Or alternatively, they can ask the controller they're dealing with to provide that directly to another controller in a machine-readable format. So you don't have to fill out lots of forms again. So if you decide, for example, that you want to move from one supplier to another, you ask to have that data in a format, maybe an XML format, maybe a CSV file, that you can give to the next supplier who can upload it into their yeah, system. Yeah, some sort of export from the database yes. of, the, of the supplier. Yes. Um, have you got a real-world example of that? What types of companies would be particularly um, need to be mindful of data portability? I think something like insurance companies may well need to be um, mindful of this um, because you fill a lot of information and you provide a lot of information to the insurance company. You may want to look at getting a quote from somewhere else. Getting that information in a machine-readable format may be an easy way for the individual to to do the switching process. And, and the, the individual, the, the customer, is... Um, I get the insurance company is obliged to meet that requirement of the customer? Yes, um, unless an exemption applies or unless technically it's so very complex to do that they need to be complying with okay. that requirement. So they need to have that capability? Yeah. Okay. And the, the, the thing we talk about a great deal, consent. Let's talk about consent. Okay. Uh, when is consent used? Consent is one of the lawful processing conditions that um, an organisation can rely on for the processing that they're doing. So they may be doing something because somebody has said, yes, I'm happy with you doing that. So perhaps a, a marketing campaign. Um, somebody said, I'm happy to receive more, your products. Um, I consent. Um, let me know what else you're doing. But what if you're not happy with what they're doing? Well, indeed. As far as marketing goes, there's a right that deals with that. So the right to refuse direct marketing, and that's a carryover from the previous law. Um, but uh, consent is, as I say, is a lawful processing condition, um, but looks different now than it did under the previous law. Yeah, and, and how is there been? Will there be an impact to consent with the introduction of this this end of transitional relief? Yes, there will. Where people have been using consent in the past, it's not necessarily been a particularly clear process. The pr- provision of consent in some. Rec- Circumstances has been implied rather than it, than explicit. Uh, from the twenty fifth of May last year, any new processing, <coughs> the, <coughs> sorry, any new processing that relied on consent um, needed to make sure that the consent was freely given, that it was clear what they were getting giving consent for, um, that it was specific and it, used in circumstances the individual is aware of, so not a blanket consent, do every, anything you want with my data, it's I'm consenting to this specific activity. Yeah, okay. um, because um, consent has been used in the past by organisations as a lawful processing condition, an additional year was given so that organisations could seek new consent that meets those new requirements from um, individuals that have previously given maybe more implied consent 
Um, so if the level of consent you've got doesn't meet the requirements of the new law, you organisations need to seek it again. So you have to go back out and ask and be very clear about yes. what you're asking for. Yeah. Okay. And okay. so because that involves going back to your client base yeah. and saying, this is what we're doing, here's the information that you need now to be able to give the fully informed consent, um, an additional year was given for that. Okay. So what do organisers... I, I, I want to just focus on that a little bit more uh, as far as the organization organization's obligations here you know um so what you're saying is that there may be an assumption that we're doing things the right way uh, but we maybe have changed some of the information that we gather or the things we we do to interact with our customer base and we and should so organizations need to be mindful that they have to go back out and say we are changing we are growing we're changing direction we're we're using your data in different ways mm-hmm. and so you you have to re-engage with them to to make sure they're aware of this and and uh, and happy for you to carry on in that direction Yes, if you're relying on consent, you certainly need to go back out and, and re-seek that consent if you haven't got consent that meets the new requirements. But looping right back round to the first point we covered, the privacy notices, it is about telling people what you're doing with their data so that people understand. Okay, thank you very much, Rachel. Hopefully that's uncovered a lot of the, uh, the mystery around the end of transition. I just wanted to provide a reminder to say that we've got a plain English guide uh, about transition relief and transition guidance on our website. So for more information, uh, go to odpa.gg forward slash all hyphen about hyphen transition and you can find out everything you need to know there. Thanks very much for listening and join us next time.